Hello, it's Tuesday, November the 16th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. From the world of grammar in English language, is the apostrophe heading for the exit? Also, the Prime Minister has refused to rule out reimposing strict travel restrictions as COVID infections rise across Europe. We're talking also about the extraordinary evidence from the cricketer Azim Rafiq before a committee of MPs today saying that English cricket is institutionally racist. But first, we're talking about the Liverpool suicide bomber, a Muslim who converted to Christianity four years ago, who is a failed asylum seeker. I'm asking the question, why was he still here? Enzo Almeini, a Muslim who converted to Christianity four years ago, has been named as the attacker behind the Liverpool bombing, but was not on any MI5 watch lists. Professor Anthony Glees, who is a security and intelligence expert at the University of Buckingham, wrote in today's Daily Mail, the scary thing is that an attack with potentially catastrophic consequences was not foreseen. He joins me now. Professor Glees, that luck is the only word one can use to uh, describe why this didn't turn into an absolute disaster. Well, I think that's right. I mean, it's a fast-moving story. There are a number of versions out there, and one version has it that uh, Mr. Perry, the taxi driver, played a key part in averting catastrophe. You had a light bulb moment and realised whether there was smoke coming out or whatever, But basically, uh, yes, this could have been a catastrophe, either as a suicide bomber in uh, the Liverpool Women's Hospital, um, you know, untold damage there, or if the original plan had been to go to uh, the cathedral, the Anglican Cathedral, less than a mile away, uh, where it was Remembrance Sunday. Uh, and that would have been catastrophic too. And we know that um, the uh, perpetrator, uh, Enzo, Emad, call him what you will, uh, had an association, an important association with the cathedral at Liverpool. So it was a realistic prospect. Yeah, it's where, in fact, um, he, he, they, they celebrated his conversion to Christianity, photographs of him with various luminaries from the cathedral. That's right. That's right. And I mean, I think what what we need to say is, yeah, we more will have to be understood about this case. But for somebody like myself, uh, who follows these things carefully, but of course, isn't on the inside of the intelligence and security community, the fact that this took place a few seconds before 11 o'clock, on Remembrance Sunday, when our entire nation falls silent. You know, Andrew, we are a divided nation. Everybody accepts that. But there are some things that bring us together as one nation. And to honour those who gave their lives, that we can be a free country, that is a very important moment in our national life. And it beggars belief that it was a coincidence that this explosive device went off in the seconds run up to the minute silence. So I would say whether the cathedral or the hospital, this was a serious attack on our national security and intended to be intended to be so. 
Of course, we remember back in the 1980s, Professor, when the IRA attacked the, the Remembrance Service at the Cenotaph in Enniskillen, killing a number of people. And many late years later, the IRA said it was a strategic mistake. Not much, much comfort that would have brought to the victims. So it wouldn't be the first time terrorists had considered such an appalling outrage. No, it, it, it wouldn't. And it's right that we point out on these occasions that there are many extremists who want to do us harm in this country. As a general rule, the IRA gave some warning, not always, of mm. course, as you point out, but they gave some warning. Islamists do not give warning. And we are also reminded, I think, of the Bataclan attack in Paris, again, at the same time as the 15th yeah. November, as I recall, in 2015, when over 100 people were, were killed. Um, so, yes, we, we, we have to be very careful. But I, I do think, the, though the intentions seem clear, the, the, the timing and the date is not uh, insignificant. And also, uh, we're told that, um, you know, th this was a man who'd been sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Perhaps he was a couple of bottles short of a six-pack. I, again, discount myself the significance of that. I think most, most Brits are decent people and they will think anybody of whatever hue that tries to kill people for no reason other than that they are members of a free society, citizens in a free society, is probably cracked. That doesn't, that doesn't add up to a row of beans. Uh, they may be cracked, they may not be cracked, they are equally dangerous. And if you're capable of constructing a bomb, then uh, whether what your mental health condition is of no no interest um what of the fact uh, professor we know that this man of jordanian origin we now think sought asylum in 2014 and that was rejected and then he appealed why on earth is an asylum a failed asylum seeker even if he's had a couple of appeals turned down why is he still in the country seven years later well that of course is a very good question and, and it does need to be looked at not least because just a few weeks ago, the Director General of MI5, Ken McCallan, made us aware of the, the risks that he, from his very important vantage point, saw coming from uh, unsophisticated attacks. Smaller plots of lower sophistication was the phrase he used on the radio, inspired uh, by... Uh, the horrors that, that we see, particularly in Afghanistan, and, and Ken McCallan underlined that, um, that individuals would be drawn to it rather than seeing networks of terrorists working together. And I think that uh, one of the questions that would, will have to be asked is, given the fact that MI5 are aware of, I don't really like the term lone wolf because usually there are other people there, but let's just use that with a phrase, lone wolves. If they're aware that these people exist and if they are aware of somebody who has been sectioned, um, who has been wielding a knife, who uh, seems to be interested in death and dying, um, 
that such a person is not picked up, not least because just a few weeks ago, again, the, the MI5, the authorities, opened a new counter-terrorist unit um, in, in, in London designed to use uh, people who are good at psychology, uh, lawyers, not just spooks and, and cops, to try to identify the people. So at the very least, I would say that this man appears not to have been on MI5's radar, the counter-terror radar, <clears throat> uh, therefore not picked up for the PREVENT program, for example, that must be alarming to the ordinary members of the public because uh, Enzo's track record was such that you would think he could constitute a danger to public safety and as a failed asylum seeker, should have been put back. Now, you and I, Andrew, may disagree about what the best way is of uh, sending those people who should not be in the United Kingdom back to where they came. Uh, we may disagree on what is the right way politically and whether we should be doing it by ourselves or whether, as I would say, together with others in, in Europe. But the fact is, this person should not have been in the United Absolutely Kingdom. Right. Absolutely right. Um, as ever, you cut to, the, to cut to the chase. That's Anthony Gleaves, Professor Anthony Gleaves, who is a security and intelligence expert at the University of Buckingham, who's written very powerfully in the mail today about the Liverpool bomb. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pierce Show for free and in full, along with other podcasts and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So the former Yorkshire cricketer Azim Rafiq, who played professionally for the County Cricket Club, has been in front of the Department of Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee today talking about the racism he says he experienced during his time at the club. He often had to choke back tears as he revealed the slur used against Pakistanis, it's the P word, was he said used constantly and he claimed when he first joined the team, he and other Asian players were told they had to, quote, sit near the toilets and were called elephant washers. Of course, one of the cricketers who's been accused of using some of the racial slurs is Michael Vaughan, a former England captain who has vehemently denied it. I'm joined now by Taj Butt. He's chairman of the Quadi Azam Cricket League. It's based in Bradford. It's been around since 1980 and it's predominantly Asian. Taj, um, I'm sure you've heard what Azim's had to say. He can speak in Parliament with absolute privilege. Nobody can sue him, so he's free to speak the truth as he sees it. If what he says is right, what, how do you react to that? Yeah, I think, again, anyone who watched it or listened to it couldn't help being emotional in terms of the experience that, that uh, Azir Rafiq has had to suffer over the years. Uh, and, you know, the hands, hands on some of the people within Yorkshire cricket. Now, I'm involved in uh, the sport of cricket and have been for a number of years. And, and you know, we see our role as introducing um, young people and adults to the sport of, the, the sport of cricket, a game that we love. Uh, and we want other people to, you know, enjoy the game for what it is, and, and a game that brings people together, and you, you make friends for life, and, and all sorts of benefits from it. But to actually see someone uh, suffering so much as as Sam Rafiq did, obviously, is is it wasn't very comfortable watching for some of the people, and and, and to be honest, it, it, some people within the game need, need to hang their heads in shame in some of the things that came out, uh, you know, in his in his testimony. 
Well, I mean, Yorkshire Cricket Club have got a lot to answer for, haven't they, Taj? But um, the chairman has, has resigned, and other members of the board have resigned. Now, in your in your in your t- cricket world, do, do your pl- I, I appreciate that your league is predominantly an Asian league, but have your any of your teams in the league experienced racism from if they take on a white team or or, or another team? Yeah, I mean, again, the, the, the whole reason why we set up the, the league in the first place, you know, back 40, 42 years ago, was simply because of the experiences that people were having, the sort of experience that Azim just, you know, Azim has just uh, spoke about this morning. Uh, and, you know, that was a common place within the, within the sport itself. And, and the only way we could actually feel, you know, feel safe and feel comfortable was actually, you know, start our own clubs, our own leagues, uh, so, so that, you know, we didn't have to experience those sort of things. And obviously things have changed over the years. Uh, mm. and, and we have now started, you know, becoming sort of more, more mainstream and people have started playing in other leagues as well and feel comfortable. But the fact that we still exist in this day and age, we still have a league, a league like ours, it tells you that we still need to make an awful lot of changes to meet, make people comfortable within the game of cricket. Yeah, and I guess grass, if it's, you need to probably perhaps start at grassroots and hope it works up to the top. I mean, the, the problem here uh, is, Taj, Yorkshire Cricket Club is one of our most famous, long-serving decorated celebrated cricket clubs and um, they appeared to go to inordinate lengths to try to uh, in, insist that the use of the p word was not racist language at all it was what the they, they said in their report was banter you're an asian man if, if someone called you uh use the p word would you regard that as banter no, of course not. And then it's, you know, obviously it's, it's a word that it's an insulting word. It's not an abbreviation as some people claim no, it to be. The word was designed to insult people, and, and that's precisely what the word is all about. And, 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 and sadly, it's not, you know, this is, it, to, you know, even now that word is actually being used. And, and, and for a club like Yorkshire to actually say it was Bantel, because that's, that's the conclusion they came to, uh, it just shows you the problems that we still have, not just uh, within the game itself, but also in society that people can still think like that and and, and 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 again as a result of thinking like that and the, those type of words and the stereotypical behaviour that's when people actually end up suffering in the way that uh, Zim Rafiq has. Can I just ask you finally Taj um, when this is all over the, the, the select committee will do its report and the rest and uh, I'm sure there'll be continued reverberations at Yorkshire Cricket Club what do you hope happens as a result of this? Yeah, I mean, again, it, it, you know, the things that came out this morning won't have come, uh, come as a surprise to some people, but again, I think most people within the game of cricket, it, they will have been shocked. And, and I hope they have been shocked to, to, to a point where they actually realise that they need to take some, take some action. And, and we cannot allow the organisations like Yorkshire Cricket and ECB to some extent allow them to get away with sort of things that they have been doing. And not only allow them, actually, there's been a certain amount of arrogance within the sport that they think they can get away with anything. But in this day and age, that cannot happen. Just extraordinary, isn't it? The, the, the use of that word, even today, we're in 2021, um, Taj, and people still think it's acceptable to use that word. Yeah, I mean, again, that's, that's the conclusion. Come to the, again, it's, it's the, the, those type of words only come, come around as a result of the culture that exists within, within a, any organisation, whether it's a cricket club or any, or any other sport or, or any walk of life. And for as long as you have that culture, uh, and we heard about some of the, the practices that that type of yeah. culture brings within the organisation, you're going to get that, t- that type of extreme behaviour and that type of extreme language, unfortunately, and, and people yeah. will continue to suffer. And they've got a lot to th- This is going to run and run, just because, of course, as you know, when Rafiq was asked if English cricket was institutionally racist, he said, yes, it's not just Yorkshire. Terrible. That's true.
Taj, lovely to talk to you. That's Taj Butt. He's chairman of the Quadier Zam Sunday Cricket League, based in Bradford, predominantly Asian, and it's been running for over 40 years. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So ministers are refusing to rule out reimposing strict travel restrictions across Europe as cases of Covid rise in Germany, France, Italy and Austria. Boris Johnson referred to it as a Covid blizzard from the east and encouraged everyone not just to get vaccinated but to have their booster jabs too. The best protection for our country, he said, is for everybody to go forward and get that booster. I'm joined now by Dr Mokaki, primary care physician. Dr Kaki, the Prime Minister is absolutely right, isn't he? But there is still resistance uh, to having the uh, jab. Uh, we know that um, some 10% of NHS staff haven't had it and uh, thousands of people who work in care homes refuse to have it. Yes, I mean, we are completely in agreement with the Prime Minister um, with what he's saying. We know that at this time of the year, the NHS is under immense stress and pressure anyway. Now we know, having had last year's uh, lockdown imposed and all the pressures we had, that we could be in for a similar situation here if we don't act soon. And I think this is where the crux of it comes. We've learned from last year. We've seen how challenging it was, and we ended up going for lockdown because of um, a foreign variant coming into the country and, and, and wreaking havoc, really. So I think what's really important is for us to make sure that we're vaccinated. And that goes across all uh, NHS workers, care staff, and, and, and everyone, really. This really does represent the, uh, the best way to stay safe yourself and to protect your family and friends and loved ones. It, it, does it puzzle you as a, as a doctor that um, still, despite figures, I think, which came out from the Office for National Statistics recently, that you're 32 times more likely to die of COVID if you've not been double jabbed, that people still resist it and still believe this old garbage they're reading on the Internet? It, it's, it's, it's baffling um, from, uh, from just the last 18 months really showing us that COVID is real it has invaded and taken over our lives and you know the pandemic hasn't gone away it's in some of our neighboring countries gathering speed and momentum i think what is worrying is the the amount of rhetoric and the amount of um false uh, and, and uh, news that has been emerging um and continues to fl- fly through social media and be picked up by many people and, and ultimately we have to remember that we are human beings who belong to families who may not be medically uh, uh, orientated, who may not have those those backgrounds. So naturally, when our family are saying, well, look at this video, look at this account, look at what happened to this person um, that has got lots of views and lots of likes and comments, it makes it very difficult because suddenly we start to to think, is this a conspiracy? Is there something Mm. else going on? Um, so, So I can completely understand that side but i think from from my side i would i'd really urge everyone to have the vaccination and say look the evidence is so strong to support us and actually the dangers as you pointed out right to that beginning statement 32 times more likely Mm. such a huge number i mean it's it's astronomical why would anybody want to take that risk yeah and what do you think also doctor about the prime minister warning now it's part it's part of presumably of of trying to get people to take the jab but saying that they may uh, impose travel restrictions in and out of europe and also 
Christmas. We all love our Christmas and it was badly affected mm. last year. Uh, if necessary, if um, the COVID infections continue to rise, deaths in hospitals are not as high as last year, that there should be restrictions brought back. Would you support that? I think I would. I mean, I'm a frontline worker. From the beginning of the pandemic, I've, I've gone from working in primary care as a GP, but also joining the secondary care hospitals to support them. And I've seen both sides of it. And the winter is always really busy anyway, but now we have got COVID and it really does wreak havoc and devastation as it did last year. Now, we have to think, we have got loved ones, we've got people we care about, we don't want them to become sick, we don't want them to become unwell, and we certainly don't want them to be waiting in ambulances, unable to get into hospitals, unable to get into intensive cares, unable to get that support and cause lots of deaths because we didn't do something about it. And whilst I think the Prime Minister is is highlighting the importance of vaccinations it's just not an empty uh, um, uh, cajoling or it's not a it's not a means to try to get people to vaccinate um, in, a, in, a, in subterfuge or in another way this is true if we don't get vaccinated what will happen is people will get sicker because they don't have the immunity they don't have the support we will become inundated with hospitals and primary care needing to see more people intensive care units will get full and loved ones will not be able to make it. They may not get the support they need. And then the only way to stop the transmission, which is causing all of this havoc, is to go into a lockdown so you don't see each other, so you don't pass on the vaccine, uh, pass on the virus. So this is the key element. The reason why we go into lockdown is to reduce transmission. And the best way for us to prevent that is to get the vaccination because we won't get so unwell and we won't overwhelm the NHS. Great advice and um, impossible to ignore, I hope. That's Dr Mokaki, who is a primary care physician. Thanks for joining us. So is the apostrophe, in fact, dying out? Researchers at Lancaster University are suggesting the advent of social media and modern technology has led to sloppy grammar and the loss of proper punctuation. Joining me now is the Senior Lecturer in Corpus Linguistics at Lancaster University and leader of the study, Dr. Vaslav Brezina. Dr. Brezina, should we mourn the loss of the apostrophe? I don't know. It depends on your perspective, really, and how closely you are connected to certain literacy practices. So it will depend whether you are an educator, an editor, or whether you are a person contributing uh, to their blog post or uh, to, to, to social media. So what I'm trying to say is that language is diversified, and it really depends on how you look at it. So I think there are multiple perspectives uh, possible on this particular feature. Now, this is the, one of the biggest studies of its kind. I think you looked at 100 million words to analyse trends and you found that the casual and ungrammatical language has definitely become more prevalent of late. Yes, we looked at a very large amount of data that we call corpora. So 100 million words is the largest balanced sample of current British English. You used words such as ungrammatical, this is of comparing the language with some norm, norms that we usually would find in language teaching or in grammar books. But what we find in language when we look at that from the research perspective is that the language is ever evolving in different ways. So things that would have been perceived uh, as uh, non-standard or 
ungrammatical, as you say, uh, would now probably be not so acutely perceived. You know, think about other features such as uh, contractions, sort of contracted short forms, can't instead of cannot. Uh, these would be much more prevalent even in formal registers nowadays. And I'm just thinking as well, the obvious casualties, it's the possessive apostrophe in plural nouns. So we're thinking if it's cats, we're talking about cats plural, and we're talking about their paws, you'd expect there to be an apostrophe after the S in cats, but they're disappearing, particularly in social media. Yes, that, this is this is absolutely correct. So the apostrophe is a multifunctional feature of language. So in some contexts, uh, we still preserve it in singular. Uh, you know, there's a still uh, in most contexts the apostrophe would be preserved. In the plural context, however, as you suggested, you know, an example would be uh, researchers interest, the interest of researchers in this sort of possessive case, uh, then uh, we would be less likely uh, to uh, preserve the, the use of apostrophe there, again, depending on in which context you would be writing. Do you think also, just finally, Dr. Pessina, that perhaps in school, when children are being taught, we know the last 18 months, it's been very difficult for them, online teaching and all the rest of it. Do you think, is there evidence that in our English classes in school, that grammar is an essential part of those classes. It certainly was when I was at school, but I'm very old, and I was at school in the 70s. Obviously, you know, this wouldn't be necessarily the uh, source of our, our, our data in terms of uh, uh, the, the needs and the cu- curriculum itself. But uh, obviously, English language has become more prominent when you look at A-level subjects, uh, mm. for instance, and A-level uh, English English language, which uh, is becoming more uh, more popular now, even with the students that we have here at Lancaster University, uh, who actually went through the A-level subject at at that at that at that stage. But yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it is a big question for educators. You know, is this something that re- requires some sort of response and uh, also some sort of nuance? Because I think, you know, there are different types of language and you, we would use different language when we talk to friends and family, when we are on social media and different language would probably be required in writing a formal essay or, you know, writing a piece uh, for the newspaper. Indeed. Just finally, Dr. Bessina, do you always use your apostrophes in the right places? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm forced to when I'm uh, when I'm uh, writing academic journals because sure. they are still sort of fairly uh, fairly conservative editorial yeah. uh, practices. So yes, you know, uh, we we would be naturally trained uh, to do that and maintain that uh, type of standard. But we don't frown upon the social media uses of language, which is more creative in some ways, and obviously, you know, uh, from the traditional point of view, less standard. But uh, when you look at the functional perspective of language, it still carries the meaning. We still can communicate successfully in those contexts. Fascinating. That's Dr. Václav Brezina, Senior Lecturer in Corpus Linguistics at Lancaster University, who is the lead of that study. Thanks for joining us. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pearce. This is The Andrew Pearce Show. I'm going to be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Music